There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on April the 18th, 2008. For all the newcomers who come in, we can do cuttingthroughthematrix.com and you'll find lots of talks from previous shows that try to piece all of this big jigsaw puzzle together for you and save you a lot of homework and a lot of grief in the process too. And look into Alan Watt's Sentinel for transcripts from the various tongues and languages of Europe. Remember, too, that this show is brought to you by yourself. And you can either buy books, DVDs, CDs, or donate to me to keep me going, because once it dries up, or I think the people are losing interest or they're diverted by the mainstream media, I'll just pack up and disappear. Because things are moving at one hell of a speed in this day and age and the public as always are so domesticated that they're unaware of what is actually happening they hear repetitions of little phrases spoken by people in powerful positions and these little repetitive phrases become fact to them they don't think beyond the phrase or what it means and of course remember that the trick of the Good Shepherd is to convince the sheep that the interests of both of them lay in the same direction. That's the con game. So we hear wonderful fuzzy things all the time about interdependence. And I'll be speaking about that later, this wonderful world of interdependence and the end to poverty, the end to all the ills of the world, and spell out really what it really, really does mean. It's hard for most of us to imagine that there's another agenda behind what is given to the public as the only agenda. And the only agenda that's given to you is that you're being taken care of by the good shepherds who come out of special wombs and who have an altruistic gene. And your gene makes them take care of you. And of course, your training is to make you nice and humble Inacceptable of having these masters, these overlords over you, so that you obey them, knowing it's all in your best interest. That's how simple the con game is. And with all the different visits to the United States of well-known public figures, you have the Pope, you have Mr. Brown from Britain, and various other people coming back and forth, all spouting the same stuff, really, Some of it's just diversionary, but look into the speeches given by Mr. Brown, the Prime Minister of Britain, because he is coming out full force with the whole global interdependence agenda on every speech that he makes. As I say, it sounds wonderful and fuzzy and rather humane to the people who truly believe the 6 o'clock news version of reality the Disney version. It sounds quite reasonable. 
But don't forget the behind is global interdependence and the end of poverty and strife and friction and terrorism and all the rest of it is also an agenda to do with sustainable development and a manageable global society, manageable by those who are presently the managers of this society. It's a world where you won't be able to do anything wrong. And remember, they keep changing the meanings of wrong and right and up and down and left and right in the normal. We adopt very quickly. And you'll all be guilty of something. I'm going to go into this after the following break. Back in a few moments. to make them produce whatever you wish to understand. 
the biology of the plant in chemistry. Very simple. So beware of the future that's being brought in. All you who are greenies and love all the soya stuff and the substitute meats and all the rest of it and your vegetables because you are what you eat and you're also upgraded to the next design by what you eat and you have no say in what goes into that food whatsoever. But here's another attack. Now, I mentioned last week, too, that the Canadian government had ordered a massive cull of the pig, the hog industry, from the government at a time, supposedly, of global food shortages and all the rest of it. And I found out that the U.S. had just implemented the same cull two weeks prior to that. I said at the time you'll find this had gone across the whole Western world, and sure enough it is. They've got to create crisis in an age of crisis creation. And here's another part towards the same agenda. This is from News Channel 8 on April the 11th, 2008, from Washington. Accidents at disease lab acknowledged the only U.S. facility allowed to research the highly contagious foot and mouth disease experienced several accidents with the feared virus the Bush administration acknowledged on Friday. A 1978 release of the virus into cattle holding pens on Plum Island, New York, triggered new safety procedures. When that incident was previously known, the Homeland Security Department told the House Committee there were other accidents inside the government's laboratory. Now, Plum Island is also a warfare department, bacterial and viral warfare department, which works with the Canadian establishments. Canada has led the field in this particular area for warfare purposes since World War II. And they still breed these giant bomber mosquitoes uh, and send them down from Ontario, Canada to Plum Island every year. Uh, the intention being that one day these mosquitoes will be loaded up with lots of viruses or bacterium and let loose on some enemy. So Plum Island's uh, also the place where Lyme disease broke out because they claimed that somehow it started there for the U.S. version, that is, because we have a Canadian version too, and it was carried by deer, they claim, across to the mainland. But getting back to the story, the accidents are significant because the administration is likely to move food and mouth research from the remote islands to one of five sites on the U.S. mainland near livestock herds. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? This has raised concerns about the risk of a catastrophic outbreak of the disease, which does not sicken humans but can devastate the livestock industry. Now, we've, had, we've already had the mad cow outbreak, and we've seen the same one cow stagger across a farmyard over and over, and that's been our only proof given to us that they even existed. And, of course, you can, you can emulate that in any animal by injecting it in the spine with various kind of drugs. And a massive cull of the herd, of the whole entire industry of animal farming, a culling was carried out across the whole length and breadth of Britain. They had pyramids of dead carcasses on television of cattle and pigs and all the rest of it, mountains of them. They almost wiped out the entire industry because they want you to go into their modified food only their vegetables that's very important then of course we have the, the big scare to do with chickens and the various flus and influenzas they can carry and they've done cullings already with this terror 
towards the H5N virus, supposedly, in British Columbia. They wiped out whole, a whole industry a few years ago when they showed some signs of having this common, common ailment that these birds have always had. So here's the next step towards the cattle. They're moving a deadly disease, supposedly, from an isolated place off the mainland on to the mainland, to five sites on the U.S. mainland, near livestock herds. Don't you see how they set all this up in advance? Skeptical Democrat leaders of the House Energy and Commerce Committee demanded to see internal documents from the administration that they believe highlight the risks and consequences of moving the research. The live virus has been confined to Plum Island for more than half a century, and here's their excuse to keep it far from livestock. Now, it's confined there because that's the warfare department that's attached to the Pentagon that specializes in viral and bacterial warfare. The 1978 accident release resulted in the foot-mouth disease virus in some of the cattle in holding pens outside the laboratory facility. Jay Cohen, a senior Homeland Security official, wrote in response to the committee. Detailed precautions were taken immediately to prevent the spread of the disease from Plum Island and new precautionary procedures were introduced. Cohen, Undersecretary for Science and Technology, said there also have been in-laboratory incidents, contamination of foot and mouth virus within the facility, but not outside it, Plum Island since 1954. That was the year the Agricultural Department acquired the land and started the Plum Island Animal Disease Centre. They love these, these, these coded names that, that sound so innocent to the general public. One government report produced last year, already provided to lawmakers by the Homeland Security Department, combined commercial satellite images and federal farm data to show the proximity to livestock herds of locations that have been considered for the new lab. Would an accident laboratory release at these locations have the potential to affect nearby livestock as the nine-page document? It did not directly answer the question. Now listen to this. A simulated, that she'd been having practices on this, a simulated outbreak of the disease in 2002, part of an earlier U.S. government exercise called Crimson Sky, ended with fictional, listen carefully to this part, you think you know what's really going on, and it comes out in little pieces within stories like this ended with fictional riots in the streets after the simulation National Guardsmen were ordered to kill tens of millions of farm animals. So many that, so many that troops ran out of bullets in the exercise. The government said it would have been forced to dig a ditch in Kansas 25 miles long to bury carcasses. In the simulation, protests broke out in some cities amid food shortages. You see how this is all tying together? They've been having these exercises and computer simulations and so on for a long time. It was a mess, said Senator Pat Roberts, Republican from Kansas, who portrayed their president in that 2002 exercise. Now, like other lawmakers from the states under consideration, Roberts supports moving the government's new lab to his state, Manhattan, Kansas. To his state, in Manhattan, Kansas, is one of the five main locations under consideration. It will mean jobs and spur research and development, he says. Oh, what a, what a joke. It's like bringing the lepers into the, into the population. 
other possible locations for the new national bio and agro defense facility, agro and bio defense facility, are Athens, Georgia, Butner, North Carolina, San Antonio, and Florida. The new site could be selected later this year, and the lab would open by 2014. The number of livestock in the counties and surrounding areas of the finalists range from 542,507 in Kansas to 132,900 in Georgia, according to the Homeland Security's Department, uh, its internal study. Quite something how they're setting up the future for more crisis and disaster. Back with more after these messages. matrix that we live in, the matrix that people think is all very real, because they are taught to see something from the way it's presented to them and not from the other side of anything. They can't think outside the box. And right enough, why should you, if you've been brainwashed from an early age, that everything is very, very real and people really care, these invisible people above you, all these agencies and bureaucracies and so on. Why should you be suspicious of anything? It isn't until you open history books and you learn that the same cons have been pulled down through history. People are always subjugated to keep them safe. They're put into slavery, in fact, to keep them safe from the predators that are always around them or within them or out there or wherever. And then they're made to work for masters. And after a generation... I think it's always been that way because all history goes down the memory hole, that wonderful Orwellian memory hole. Once it's gone, you, you don't know anything. You have nothing to compare it to. And lessons have to be learned all over again, and that takes a lot of time and suffering. This is from the lecture that Mr. Gordon Brown, Prime Minister of England, gave on 18th of April, 2008, from the Kennedy Memorial uh, Lecture uh, site in the U.S., I will read it all because he starts off with the usual intro. Remember, these speeches are written for them by professional speech writers. These guys are primarily actors that we see. And he goes on to, to puff up the relationship between the U.S. And, the U, and, and Britain. He brings up John F. Kennedy and walking on the moon and all the usual stuff that we've been so successful at, supposedly, and how the Cold War has reduced to rubble uh, the Berlin Wall and all that kind of stuff. Then he goes on again to praise President Kennedy and says this. He says, and although he was present for less than three years, I believe that much of the progress of this half century has been testament to the scope of John Kennedy's dream. Now that's how they put uh, an agenda onto someone else's words, uh, someone who's generally dead quite a long time ago. This is how they do it in history as though this was John Kennedy's idea. The worth of all the ideals he lived for, the breadth of the hope he inspired in us, and most of all, amidst all of the wit, style, elegance, and statementship that adorned the Kennedy presidency, his summons to service. Now, that summons to service did not begin with Kennedy. It came out of Britain. It came out from, from the institution set up by Cecil Rhodes that 
blossomed into the Royal Institute for International Affairs. That was their whole idea, was creating a world society and a world government where everyone who would be born would be born into service towards that government. So here they are pushing it all on to Kennedy because they must con the average person who doesn't know their history, especially in the United States today, since this is aimed at U.S. citizens, this particular speech. It says, one that never fails to inspire people to see further and reach higher, a call which still reverberates around the world and always will. And its influence for good is so powerful that as Pericles said in ancient times, even when he had left this world, his influence abides everywhere woven into the stuff of other men's lives. This is a pretty pathetic speechwriter. However, let's continue with it. He goes on to say, he says, and although it is perhaps risky for a British Prime Minister to come to speak in Boston shortly before Patriot's Day, I am pleased that over the past half century, and here's the phrase that's used, it's been used since the beginning of the Cold War, the special relationship between America and Britain, which John Kennedy prized, remains strong and enduring. Now, Margaret Thatcher used that same term over and over, the special relationship. What they're referring to is on different levels. On one level, it was the, the creation of the CIA and MI6 tied at the hip. That was part of it. And the other part was the fact that, that, that Britain is run through front organizations primarily at the top. They're all Institute for International Affairs and its counterpart in the U.S., its brother, the Council on Foreign Relations. That's what that means, the special relationship between America and Britain. Then he goes on to say, Today Americans must learn to think intercontinentally, he said. Acting alone by ourselves cannot establish justice throughout the world. You see, they're just torn apart. They can't sleep thinking about the injustice across the planet. We cannot ensure America's domestic tranquility, provide for its common defense, or promote its general welfare, or secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. But joined with other free nations, we can do all this and more. And here's where he goes on to it again, again pushing on to JFK. So if the 1776 Declaration of Independence stated a self-evident truth that we are all created equal, JFK's Declaration of Interdependence. JFK's Declaration of Interdependence. Where's that word come from again? Interdependence. In 1962, added another self-evident truth that we are all of us, all of us throughout the world, in this together. That's the great slogan in all wartime. We're all in it together, you see? It's traditional slogan type of script writing. But interdependence. Now, JFK did not coin that term either. It was coined by the Royal Institute of International Affairs at the, at the end of, of the, the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, when it migrated from the Rhodes Foundation into the RIIA. That's where it came from. And I'll be back with more of this after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, this is Alan Watt, cutting through the matrix. Reading this talk that was given out to the press, really, written by scriptwriters who all belong to the same club, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, with its counterpart, the Council on Foreign Relations, the one who drafted up the same organizations that drafted up the integration of Europe and the integration of the Americas, and they also did it for the Far East too, with their members in Australia and New Zealand. And as they're doing all this and getting us all integrated, you see in our sections, our regions, they're already moving towards the global system and the changes that must take place once the whole global network is up. You see, we always think there's going to be an end to something. Once we're amalgamated, that's just the end of it, of a breathing space. But now these guys are on a business schedule here and they know how to implement it. So continue with this. And I've already mentioned this part, which is very uh, interesting. He says, nothing in President Kennedy's enduring legacy has greater importance now at the beginning of the 21st century than his words on Independence Day in 1962 when he proposed a new and global declaration of interdependence. Interdependence. That means you're totally dependent on a system. That's really what it's getting down to. And Kennedy, Kennedy did not dream this up. And he goes on to say, yet no one in 1962 could have foreseen the the sheer scale of the new global challenges that our glowing interdependence brings. Again, the repetition of the word interdependence brings their scale, their diversity, and the speed with which they have emerged. And he he goes on to list them all. The globalization of the economy. Now, they wrote about the globalization of the, the economy in the late 1800s when roads and as companions were sent out to take over the economy of the planet and the resources of the planet. Things on to see the threat of climate change. Well, that's true. In 1962, the Club of Rome hadn't gone all the way and come up with the idea of global warming as an enemy, which they published in their own book called The First Global Revolution. They hit on the idea of blaming the public, the general population, is causing global warming, something that didn't... Uh, it, it, actually, isn't it amazing, too? They admit, the same scientists admit that the planet hasn't warmed for the last 10 years, which has just thrown all their theories out the window. Things aren't to say the long struggle against international terrorism. Well, at that time, the CIA and MI6 and others had funded all the groups in the Middle East to fight the Soviets. So they knew, even then, what was all going on, they'd have to take down those same groups once there was no more Soviet threat. Then the need to protect millions from violence and conflict and to face up to the international consequences of poverty and inequality. This elite of inbreds at the top who've squelched off the public for thousands of years are talking about the fact that we end this poverty and inequality in society. And we know what that really means because they have a different agenda and different meanings for these particular words. Challenges that all point in one direction to the urgent necessity for global cooperation. For none of them, from the economy to the environment, can be solved without us finding new ways of working more closely together. To recognize this is important, but simply to acknowledge that there are no Britain-only, Europe-only, or America-only solutions to the global threats and challenges we face, or to say we are all internationals now, will change nothing in itself. Instead, we must go much further. I told you they're working on the next part, and they haven't even done the final signing of the integration of the Americas. 
acknowledging that our common self-interest as nation-states can be realized only by practical cooperation, that responsible sovereignty means the acceptance of clear obligations as well as the assertion of rights. He's talking about the United Nations taking over as it was set up to do in the first place. Then he says, and my arguments today is simple. Global problems require global solutions. We have to hand it to the United Nations. The greatest of global challenges demands of us the boldest of global reforms. Bold reforms. Now, bold is a term used, again, as I say, by knights. It means doing the unthinkable. But the average person would think of as unthinkable. The boldest of global reforms. Reforming the whole structure of system of everything. The most urgent of tests demands the broadest of global cooperation and to address the worst evils of terrorism, poverty, environmental decay, disease and instability, we urgently need to step out of the mindset of competing interests and instead find common interests, summoning up the best instincts and efforts of humanity in a cooperative endeavor to build new international rules and institutions for the new global era. Then he goes on to sketch out what these solutions happen to be. Now remember, this is a speech given out. And really, the agenda's all well underway. This is just to familiarize some of the interested public, to familiarize you with the predictive programming of what's going on. This is the first and perhaps because of the credit crunch or the most immediate challenge is economic globalization itself. That means all currencies are going to get devalued as they create a global crisis because they must bring out an international currency. And does not the recent sharp and still unresolved credit crunch, which has affected the whole world, now demonstrate that with global flows of capital already replacing the old national flows and global sourcing of goods and services, replacing the old local sourcing, national systems of supervision and economic management are simply inadequate, right? National systems of supervision and economic management are simply inadequate to cope with the huge cross-continental flows of capital in this interdependent world. Is that repetition, as, as Bertrand Russell said, here, I keep repeating it. So they're telling us that the reason it's all happening, all these crises are happening, and the money's been down the tubes is because it didn't see what was coming. It's just too haphazard the way it's run, and we've got to merge all together and give all the power to a new institution to deal with everything globally. And I wonder what that would be. Then he says, but it's not the issue even bigger than that, that we are seeing in the scale, scope, and speed of globalization the biggest restructuring of economic life since the Industrial Revolution. Already Asia is manufacturing more than Europe and soon America. China alone is producing half the world's clothes, and half the world's electronics. What was it Marx said? He says, one day a factory will be producing all the shoes for everyone on the planet. Another factory would make all the furniture for everyone on the planet. But that's all coincidence. It's also coincidence that Marx, Marx talked about a united Europe, a united America, and the Pacific Rim region under a world government in the 1800s. It's all coincidence. Then it says here, and the reality is that we are all affected now by what happens in Asia or Latin America or Africa. And if we do not work across countries and continents to create a globalization that is inclusive for all, then not only will the poorest of the world who lose out react to being excluded, but people in their own countries will feel, as many do today, victims, not beneficiaries of the process of change. 
losers and not winners, and protectionist sentiments will gain ground. He says, I am optimistic about the benefits of interdependence. How many times has he said that so far? And certain that globalization need not be a zero-sum game that says if China or India benefits, America or Europe loses. Why? Because over the next 25 years, we will see the world economy doubling in size, creating a billion new professional or skilled jobs worldwide, probably all in security forces, offering opportunity for any who have the creativity, ingenuity, skills, and talent to benefit, a time of huge opportunity, even if it is also a time of change and risk. They prattles on again using John Kennedy, etc., 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 and and there's more about this, this, this uh, all, all the different methods they'll have to bring together to create to, to meet the challenges, including climate change. Of course, they just know that the climate is going to change. Here they are dosing us with with uh, raid. It's like raid they use on ants and roaches from the skies every day. I mean, do it for 10 years, and they won't even talk about that. And the full knowledge, unfortunately, which is quite true, that the, the, the majority of the public don't even notice what's happening in their environment. Remember what Singer said, and others, to do with, with um, behavior modification. If you want to change people, you change that which is in their environment to a radio in their, in their room or a television in their room and their behavior changes because they'll sit and watch it. They won't do other things. Very, very simple. But also they can change what's happening above your head. And if it's not on television, it can't be important. Therefore, you won't even perceive it. It's out of your mind. You've just deleted it. You delete what you see. When a sentient animal or creature deletes that kind of thing, it means it has no survival capabilities. So it shows you these characters already know the vast majority of the public cannot perceive for themselves at all. And that's why they can go so rapidly with this agenda. We're being sprayed like bugs. He's only say here in the same speech, he says, a third force of globalization is a sobering reality that's already struck home in both Britain and America, that we are exposed unpredictably but directly to the risk of violence and instability originating in failed and rogue states. Now, a rogue state is any country that won't go along with the United Nations. That's why they define a rogue state. This is once we feared rival nations becoming too strong. Now the worst threats come from states that are too weak. And we know that the richest citizen in the richest country can be directly affected by what happens to the poorest citizen in the poorest country. Today, no country can say that failed or failing states are someone else's problem. They're a problem for us all. Instability in one country affects stability in all countries. What he's telling you here is a build-up to the, to, the, to the what's already here, really, and that's a world army of rapid deployment forces to go into any nation where there's turmoil, and that means includes America, Britain, and every other country. Quite the talk but written, as I say, by speechwriters for this particular time in history. And the people at the top in bureaucratic classes and, and universities will pick up on the, the words that are now politically correct, interdependence, parrot, 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 until it becomes the buzzword. 
and we'll, in a short time we'll think that national independence is somehow quaint and obsolete. Very simple psychology. Now I'll go to the phones and we've got Mark in Pennsylvania. Are you there, Mark? Hello, Mark. Hi, Alan. Good evening. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, uh, I Not so bad. <laughs> I always wanted to say that to you. Yes. What is the difference between predictive programming and scaremongering? How can it, it, you tell the difference? Yeah, it's very allied together. Predictive programming generally comes out uh, through fiction, not always, but through fiction, uh, and um, it will show you future scenarios, not necessarily in the distant future, but future scenarios where you, you will see scenarios occurring uh, in such a way in fictional form that you become used to the idea subconsciously so that when it happens in real life, you act the way that the characters in the movie reacted to it and come to the same conclusions and, and resolution. It's to get you ready for a particular type of resolution, whether it's surrender to this or acceptance to that. But one way or another, you're being told how to behave when this happens. That, that's the real difference between it. Fear-mongering can be used along with it uh, to use to get us also um, unstable in our minds to think that the sky is falling and everything's falling apart uh, so that they can stampede us. Once you're stampeded in motion and you get the herd moving uh, in a frightened way, you can introduce so many new measures and governmental laws and regulations the public will accept them in blind panic situations where they would never accept them if they were rational and stayed and, and, and quite content. So when you're panicked and afraid, uh, again, this is why the economy has, has been uh, rattled the way it is. It's like, it's, like, it's like coins in a tin cup just rattling. And everyone's terrified and afraid. It's to get you ready to give up uh, more rights than you understand. It's, it's a whole new way of living they want to bring you into. And you'll be dependent on a system. And you'll be given credits by a system eventually instead of earning money. And those credits, as Bertrand Russell said, will be used like rations. You'll have a, you can't save them up. They'll go into your bank account every week. If you're a good citizen, you can pay your rent, buy your food. If they punish you for being antisocial, they'll be withdrawn from your bank and you'll have no money at all. That'll be your punishment. So money itself will eventually be used as a weapon of, of uh, social coercion along an agenda. I think maybe I asked the, the I didn't ask the question the right way. <laughs> Um, for example, Alex Jones, a lot of people don't know this, was the one who scared us about the Y2K situation that was coming up. Now, I'm in sort of IT, and I knew that that was a ridiculous scare tactic. But what about the new people who aren't aware of this sort of thing? Is there advice that we can give them to say, okay, if this person or this sort of thing is being said, it's probably not predictive programming, but a scaremongering. Well, scaremongering uh, in all media takes off like a rocket. Mm -hmm. And the Y2K was presented to the public. Here's a clue. The major media never said it's going to happen. They floated the idea out there of possible calamities, all, all theoretical possibles. And then they did interviews with the man and the woman in the street. Thing, and what they said was, do you believe in Y2K? Mm. That was your clue. Mm. 
do you believe in Y2K? They didn't say, what are you going to do when Y2K occurs? But they actually asked the question, do you believe in Y2K? That's uh, almost a legal uh, definition of belief as opposed to fact. And when they presented it that way to the public, I knew it was a complete con game. It was also a test to see if the public would, would panic, you see. Uh, so it's kind of like a trial balloon in a sense. Yes. Yeah. So, for example, with the crashing of the dollar, is that mm -hmm. another trial balloon or is that going to happen, do you think? There's no doubt. You see, when they amalgamated Britain, before they amalgamated Britain, Britain had a completely different monetary system than the rest of Europe. And you had the British pound. And in the 70s, they decimalized everything. So they took, they completely altered the system from 240 pennies to a pound, a British pound, mm -hmm. uh, down to five new, new pence to the shilling. Instead of 20 shillings to the pound, you had, you had, you had, you had uh, or, or, or pennies, you had 12 pennies to the shilling. They changed it to five new pence or new pennies to the shilling, and everyone was totally confused. And at the same time, they hit you overnight with a value-added tax. No one, and but no one, could figure out for, for for months how much they'd been suckered. Because really, what they'd done is is devalue the, the British currency uh, by at least double, at least double. So whenever they bring in a new currency for the Americas or whatever or the world. They always devalue the currency by about half. That's what they're going to do. Uh, so they're getting us used to getting this idea that we'll be devalued by at least half in the new type of economic system. Hang on, and we'll talk about this after this break. Hi, this is Alan Watts, back cutting through the matrix. And just to finish up with Mark, yeah, always before they amalgamate countries to join them with other countries, they will always devalue a currency by at least half. And that, that's standard technique done through history. Yeah. Very interesting. In fact, I'm looking right now that the dollar, I have a website that I go to, the dollar is now indexed at uh, 72.1. And uh, about two and a half years ago, it was indexed close to 95 point something or other. That's right. So, so I guess we're getting pretty close to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'll let other callers call in. I really appreciate it. Have a great night. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Now, is PG from the U.K. still on the line? Good evening, Alan. Um, thank you very much for your program. Just to follow up quickly, just your, to, to prove the point you're making about Brown and the posturing, the Mugabe and the trashing of Rhodesia and the UK, US, EU and South Africa are doing absolutely nothing about it. What's your take on that, please? Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, I mean this whole idea with the, um, the, the setup of the whole African National Congress was set up to bring in what the, what, what the natives would think were going to be their own country. It was funded from the Western powers. Uh, when Rhodesia was under the, the white rule, uh, they were shocked, and so was South Africa when their turn came, when Britain and America simply looked the other way. And yet these were countries that were part of the British Commonwealth that had fought in all their wars for them and funded them and paid their taxes to them and supplied men to them, but they were left mm -hmm. to this African National Congress. It was a scripted plan, and of course the, the, the people who lived there had no idea of the long-term agenda. And now uh, you're finding that the Africans are finding out there's another agenda at work again, and it's not their government after all. Uh, they want a united African 
our continent out of this, and it's not going to be what they think is, is, is a native-run type system whatsoever. It's going to be completely in debt to all the same institutions and banks, uh, oil and mineral industries as every other country is. That That's what it's all about. Okay, just briefly. I notice I've lived amongst white South Africans, British and Dutch in Britain here. They have nowhere to say, even those who have exited the country, you think they'd be kicking up hell, going to the BBC and let's say, let's go back and get Mugabe. It's as if they've been paid off. Do you think there's a conspiracy of silence there, even those who have been pushed out of the country? It's very possible, and also, too, that they probably can't get a word in edgeways, because, as I say, when, when uh, the farce the was happening before with Rhodesia in the early 80s, um, whole people were being hunted down, families, uh, hundreds of families were being hunted down by the ANC and trying to get out the country. Their bank accounts were frozen, were trying to get to Britain, Canada and elsewhere, and the British government didn't lift a finger to help them. Um, as I say, there's bigger powers at play here, and remember, for the elite at the top, they don't care what colour you are ultimately. You're, only, you're all expendable once the, your part in the agenda is, is over and done with. It looks like it. Well, thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Yeah, we, we certainly have seen all of these machinations done through the ages. And so remember, remember always when you read these speeches by the big boys at the top, uh, they have their own agenda. As I said, at the start of the show, I said the trick of the shepherd is to convince the flock, the sheep, that the farmer and the sheep both have their interests laying in the same direction. That's the simple con game of perception distortion. They have a different agenda. They have a, a depopulation agenda. They have a, an agenda to do with creating new types of humans, post-humanism agenda. Look into that and see the big professors and big foundations backing it. This is not to help end world poverty unless they eradicate the poor. Always remember that. From Hamish and myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. I mean, your God or your gods go with you.